Welcome back to HIF Player, the podcast from Harrogate International Festivals. This week we're celebrating Burns Night, and who better to join us to do that than two Scottish supernovas? Taking to our digital stage are the international best-selling crime fiction author and co-founder of the Fixenol Peculiar Crime Writing Festival, Val McDermott, and Scotland's First Minister and an incredibly passionate reader, Nicola Sturgeon. So sit back, relax, and join us for another fantastic event. This event was recorded live at the Fixton or Peculiar Crime Writing Festival 2019. Oh. Beer. Beer. <laughs> I've got the beer right. for you. Who told them we were Scottish? <laughs> Good morning. It is absolutely fabulous to be here. Um, can I just start by saying a huge thank you to Thixton's Crime for giving me a great weekend. It's been a joy. Uh, but the biggest joy of all is getting to talk to my pal Val. <laughs> that rhymes. My pal Val. Um, in true Scottish see, style. See, see don't, don't give up the day job. <laughs> well, I'm going to come on to your day job in a minute, but... Um, in true Scottish style, I don't want to worry you, Val and I have just had a bit of a, a disagreement about football. Um, <laughs> but unless you are familiar, and I'm assuming a Harrogate audience is not that familiar with the Air United Wraith Rovers rivalry, <laughs> I think we should probably leave that Aye. there for the moment. And we should just accuse my team of breaking the leg of her goalkeeper. And I, no, not obviously... No, goalkeeper, her captain. Your captain, well... Fair enough. But anyway, it happened. Can I just say it's, it's not, not true? It happened, you know? It is not true. She's very, she's, I'm just going to say this and then we're going to move on, okay? She's very bitter because last season it was down to her team or my team as to who got promotion in Scottish football. And suffice to say, my team won. So she's never quite got over it. But anyway, I don't think we'll talk any more about football. See, that's typical politician. Don't like the direction. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm, get, I'm, I'm, I'm just getting the feeling here you're more on her side than mine, and I don't, I don't like that. This time, this time. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to try and change that over the course of the next hour. It is fantastic to be here uh, with uh, one of my, in fact, my favourite crime author, uh, the, the queen of crime, Val McDermott. But before we go on to uh, Val's writing, and in particular her new book, which I'm about halfway through, I wanted to turn to, I suppose, what can only be described as the distraction from your day job, which is this newfound persona as the Queen of Rock. <laughs> now, you probably haven't heard this because Val's quite shy and modest about it, but she played, she played Glaspen, Glastonbury uh, recently. Um, so how... <laughs> she, hasn't, she hasn't showered since. <laughs> so, Val, just talk us through... You know, how did this come about? Where is it going? The only thing I've heard you talk more about than uh, your recent performance at a certain uh, rock festival is being kissed by Debbie Harry. I don't know if those two things are connected in any way. Anyway, tell us how it has come to pass that you are this famous aspiring rock chick. Are we, are, are we in danger of seeing the day job take second place over well, the next well, few years? Well, who knows? I mean, one never likes to predict these things, but I think it was the kiss from Debbie Harry that started it all. You know, it's a bit like, you know, when, when, the, when, you, when the, the kiss, the princess kisses the frog. 
You know, and the That's no way to describe Debbie Harry. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, and so I was transformed into a rock chick by the kiss from Debbie Harry. Um, and and in, in the wake of that, in the year that followed, we formed the Fun Loving Crime Writers. Uh, and we did what we thought would be the first of a handful of gigs, possibly, at the Edinburgh Book Festival. Um, and I think a lot of people came along because of the novelty. They thought, you know, to be honest, I think they came along because they thought they'll be a bit shit and we can laugh at them. <laughs> Uh, and then they came and, 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 and then they came in and they were going like, oh, they're not actually that bad, are they? Oh, they're really quite good. Uh, and in the wake of that, we started getting other invitations to, to book festivals and, and it just kind of snowballed. Um, last year we did, I think, 13 gigs uh, and it culminated with being invited to play Glastonbury and Cornbury festivals this summer. So you should fun. talk more about that, I think. Cause I think, because, yeah, I know people don't really know about yeah. it. <laughs> and what, what was that experience like of playing on the same bill as Stormzy and yeah. The Cure and who else? Kylie. Kylie. <laughs> <laughs> we, did play, we did play on the same bill at Cornbury as a band billed as the Beach Boys, which appeared to be one, one remaining living Beach Boy <laughs> and a tribute band. So at least at least we are still the original fun-loving crime writers. Right. And do you uh, see? Do you think it's going to go global? Do you see an international world tour? I don't know. I mean, I'm off to New Zealand in, in September, and, and the guys are like already in, in, into my ribs, saying like, "You got to get some gigs in New Zealand and Australia," like because that because that is within my gift, of course. I'm sure you <laughs> could arrange it. And as of Friday night, last question about your music. As of Friday night, I suspect you now find or think you have found the ideal backing singer. And that search is, is Absol over. Absolutely. We had Lilia Sigurdardottir <laughs> up on stage. <laughs> and there was some, some, some other woman up there as well, you know. But yeah, anyway. you're very welcome. Any time to come and join us for Sympathy for the Devil. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Another dig at politicians. <laughs> anyway, look, let's turn to the new book. Have you all got a copy? Yes, that wasn't loud enough of you all. <laughs> Yes. But this, this is the latest Tony Hill and Carol Jordan. Um, I, I am about halfway through it, so I'm not able to give you spoilers, and I wouldn't give you spoilers anyway. But by my reckoning, Carol and Tony have been... It's about mid-90s, the first Carol and... 95. 95. Yeah. And this 10th, 11th... It's the 11th. 11th book. Um, Val, how can I say this politely? Val gives her characters quite a hard time sometimes. She's not kind to them. And during uh, the last Tony and Carol book, all through it, I thought she's finally maybe just going to give them some happiness. This is kind of looking as if it might be heading towards <laughs> some kind of decent resolution. And then the book ends with one of the characters in jail uh, for killing somebody, which was not kind of how... I expected it to end. Anyway, this one obviously picks up from there. I'm not going to tell you any more, but is there any happiness ahead for Tony and Carol in this oh, book? I think, I think it would be fair to say that there's a little less trauma ahead. That doesn't say very much. <laughs> it's, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, I, I think... Uh, I'm, I suppose to some degree uh, what I'm doing is kind of trying to mirror the effect that working in these areas has on people that I think modern crime fiction, unlike the golden age where characters like Poirot and Miss Marple endlessly had these murder investigations that had no impact on them whatsoever. And, you know, Jane Marple never stops and says, how is it that all my friends are dead or in prison? <laughs> but 
I think nowadays writers and readers expect, mm. um, I, I suppose, a more of a sense of authenticity, that characters carry the weight mm. of what they've experienced with them. And so, really, it would be unrealistic to think that Tony and Carol, after all these years of, of doing extreme investigations, would be untouched by it. And so that, that, that is a price that, mm. that, they, that they continue to have to pay. And it's trying to find a way to balance that with their humanity and their continued existence. That, you know, to give them something, I suppose, to carry on living for. Because it would be... I mean, and we, and we all know the toll that is paid by, by people who do this kind of job. Uh, so I think um, I'm trying to, to, to show that, but still to, still to maintain uh, stories that move, move forward, that, that draw the reader in. That there's enough uh, interesting and good stuff going on to make it not just a sort of misery fest. Mm. So, Paul is there more... still out there having a good time, you know? Yeah, I love. I, again, I'm anxious here not to sort of give anything away from the the half that I've already read. But one of the things I, I think is fantastic about this is getting an even greater insight into to Tony and you know what makes Tony tick his kind of professional uh, perspectives on things and you know I'm not giving too much away here but he's writing a book as he serves out uh, his prison sentence so that you know, it brings a depth I think to the story and the, the development of, of the characters that I think is is amazing oh, and and oh. you you One can. of the things that I'm, I'm waiting for my publisher to say is, well, you've got a, every chapter begins with an epigraph from mm. Tony Hill's fictitious book. I'm just waiting for my publisher to say, are you going to write Tony's book? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can see it by the till at, at, at the WH Smith at Christmas time, the little book of Tony Hill. Yeah. Can I just say, I think that's a great idea. So <laughs> <laughs> I would buy it. Um, so, you know, what lies, I'm not asking you to say exactly what lies ahead for Tony and Carol, but is there lots more to come or is, is this series perhaps reaching a conclusion? Obviously, it's been on television, Wire in the Blood, they've been through a lot. I think you're absolutely right. The, the authenticity here of, of the impact on them shines through this. But presumably, there must come a point where, you know, these series come to a natural end. Yeah, I think so. And there's a difficult thing... Um, for an author to to accept and to and to deal with and to move on from, and I do think this is probably the last Tony and Carol for the foreseeable future. <laughs> <laughs> and and no, but I feel I feel Val, can I just interject here? Just, right, you don't kill them. No, I've always book. promised that I wouldn't right, kill okay, either of them. <laughs> okay, they're still alive at the end of the book. Okay, just. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But so is that is that a firm decision or is that just how you? It's certainly you feel? a decision for now, okay. uh, and I certainly I, I don't envisage writing another one in the immediate future. I'm not saying never again, but um, I think you do come to a point with the series where you think, what can I do with this that is still mm. fresh? And I think we've all read series where they've kind of run out of steam where the author's just written another book with the same character because that's what's ex expected mm. of them. And, the, and I don't want to be the kind of writer who just writes the same book again and again. That would, that would drive me mad. And I think it would also sell my fans short. Mm -hmm. So I'd rather, as it were, stop a series while it's still on a high and while I still feel confident that I'm, I'm breaking new ground for the characters rather than just keep doing the same thing again and again and again and actually 
sort of plowing the series into the dust and have the conversation I've heard so many readers and friends have about so-and-so. Oh, the first, the first three books in the series were fantastic, but there's not been a good one since book 12. You know, I don't, I don't want to be that writer. I don't think you're in any danger of being <laughs> that writer. And certainly, uh, from what I've read in this, uh, Tony and Carol are still very much on, on a high, but I, I, I get that. But I think you've heard from the audience here that we might want you to keep that under review over the years and, and not completely close your mind to no, I'm not, new I'm chapters. No, I'm not closing my mind to it. I mean, I never say never to yeah. anything. Um, you know, and, and uh, there's also a sort of element, too, of, of, of being excited to, to revisit the characters when the characters are speaking to you. Mm. You know, and, and sometimes that just stops happening in, in, in this, with the same intensity. You know, I never intended to finish the Kate Brannigan series after book six, mm. but she just <laughs> fell out with me or something. I don't know quite. I don't know, it must have been something Football. I said. <laughs> Football, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It must have been something I said. Um, and, and I just didn't hear that voice in my head anymore. And mm. I, you can't, for me anyway, I can't force it. If it doesn't feel like I'm, uh, that the character's inhabiting me for, mm. for the duration of writing the book, then I, 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 can't, I can't do it. I can't fake it. Do you, when you're writing, this is kind of getting a bit more into the process of, of writing. Do you, when you're writing a book, do you almost become the character? Do you go through a period of immersing yourself so much that, that you are that character? That would be a little bit weird. <laughs> well, you are. I'm just popping out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I want it noted uh, that Val's partner, Joe, led the applause at that moment there. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I don't so much inhabit the character as... as, as um, Engage in, in a conversation, a dialogue with those characters. So I kind of hear their voices in my head. I'm having conversations mm -hmm. with them all the time. Um, I am the mad woman walking by the water of Leith, muttering and gesticulating. I have actually passed you in Edinburgh, as you wondered, <laughs> when I've thought to myself, you look as if you're talking to yourself. Uh -huh. um, so now I know why. Well, it, actually, there's one thing about new technology that's made that much more acceptable. Everybody just assumes you're on the phone. <laughs> you know, so. So I just, I just stick my wee thing, my wee Bluetooth thing in my ear and nobody thinks I'm, I'm just blethering to myself, you see. It? But, but the, the, the closer I get to the deadline and the more sort of engaged I am with the book, the, the mm -hmm. more difficult it is for me to stop hearing the voices in my head. And um, when, when Joe and I are, are, are a part of a night, well, we speak to each other on FaceTime and Joe says that when it's getting towards the end of the book, she can see when we're talking, I'm sort of, my eyes and my, sort of flicking from side to side as if I'm actually, there is somebody in the room with me. But of course, there never is. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> Honestly, Joe. <laughs> that is the best cover story I have ever heard. <laughs> but we all believe you. Yeah. So from Tony and Carol to one of your other uh, characters, my uh, favourite character, uh, I have to say, Karen Perry. Um, I have to say, when I, again, try not to give anything away, but in the first few pages of this book, there is a historical crime emerges that I assume is going to become the central part of the book. But at that moment, I thought it would be great if Karen Perry just appeared here as a, a consultant or, or something to help solve this crime. Were you ever tempted? Are you ever tempted to sort of, you know, bring one character into the lives of, of others? Not so much, but the, the, the trouble with Tony and Carol and, and Karen is that they operate in different jurisdictions. You know, maybe a wee bit far-fetched. Oh. Karen's on her holidays in Bradfield when they stumble across the No, no, but skeletons. they can take the advice of the crack Police Scotland uh -huh. historical cases squad. I like a little layer of authenticity in my books. 
<laughs> if you're watching, Chief Constable, my apologies for, yes. for that. Very nice man, the Chief Constable. Very nice man. Um, but uh, I think what, where, where that kind of crossover has happened is in, is in my standalones, really. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so there have been times when I've had a, a, a standalone. Uh, in fact, I mean, that's kind of how Karen ended up being, mm -hmm. being a series character. Um, it's, it's, it's really down to laziness. Uh, when I started writing A Darker Domain, or started thinking about A Darker Domain, which is, the, is now the second Karen Perry novel as it's billed, um, I knew it was going to be a cold case, and I knew it was going to be in Fife. Um, and I thought, I need a cold case detective in Fife. Oh, I've got one. I'll just use her. Nobody will notice that she was in a book before, because it was real. Her part in Distant Echo was, was small but significant. And so I brought her in for a darker domain. And of course, that was the thing. Once I started working with her centre stage, I started to understand her better and understood how I could use her better and other cases she could, she could do. And also in, in, that, in that book, uh, I needed a, a forensic anthropologist and I'd already invented one for a book called The Grave Tattoo. Mm. And I thought, oh, well, I'll just bring her in here, you know, because nobody will notice. So, and it's, it's my fictitious universe. I could do what I want. So, so in, in, the, in the standalone world, um, characters can move between books. Uh, and I have, I have actually, a, I, think, I think, a unique distinction in terms of characters moving. Uh, years ago, uh, I sent Lindsay Gordon to go and live in California, because mm -hmm. I thought I'd run out, I, 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 I intended the Lindsay Gordon books to be a trilogy, and I didn't want to be tempted to continue out of laziness, so I sent it off to California, because I knew I couldn't write a book set in America, because I didn't understand it well enough to do that. Um, and so she, there she was in America, popping back every now and again to engage in an investigation, and I gave her a dog, lovely black lab, to run about the beach with her in California. And then I, the the fifth Lindsay Gordon book, at the end of that, I'd, she's, having a, she's going flying back to California on the plane with her girlfriend, and she says that they start having a conversation about moving back to the UK and how it makes so much more sense. Uh, so I sent this manuscript off to my, my, ed, my agent, uh, and my agent, was a great lover of her dog, rang me up a couple of days later and said, how can you do this? How can you possibly do this to poor mutton? What? <laughs> Poor dog, it's absolute cruelty. You're going to put him in quarantine for six months? It's a disgrace. You should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> and, 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 you know, you really don't want to upset your agent, you know. So I, I, I happened to be having dinner that week with my friend Laurie King, who's an American writer of some note. Uh, and uh, she has one of her two series is a, a, a cop based in San Francisco. And we're talking about this, and, and, and I said, agent's really upset with me. I, I'm going to get in big trouble if I don't resolve this. I said, oh, it's simple. Give the dog to one of my characters. <laughs> so Lindsay Gordon's dog now features in Laurie King's Kate Martinelli novels. <laughs> and everybody was happy. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> anyway... T talking about you should be ashamed of yourself, let's turn back to Karen Perry. Uh, who in here loves Karen Perry as much as I do? Right. Nobody loves Karen Perry as much as I do. It's fair to say I, I don't trust Val with Karen's happiness. Um, for those who haven't read it again, I'm, I'm not going to, to spoil it, but at the end of Skeleton Road, uh, she does this really awful thing 
to Karen, and I've never quite forgiven her for it. And in the last Karen Perry book, of course, there is some sense of happiness maybe emerging, but you go through the whole book just expecting it to fall apart. And it, it doesn't, to be fair. The next book after this will be Karen Perry. It will, yeah. yes. So can you give us some insight into what might lie ahead for Karen? Well, Hamish is still going to be around. I mean, I understand from, from some readers that they've actually... Um, Karen has fallen into second place in their affections behind Hamish the Highlander. <laughs> but yeah. Hamish will still be around. And, um, you know, this is... this you know, The course of true love never did run smooth. But no, but it doesn't always have to end with the love of your life being brutally killed. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are other options. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, you know, there's, there's only so much damage they can do once they're dead. <laughs> Not in your world. <laughs> so no, I, 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 think that, uh, I think it's fair to say I'm not planning to impose any great level of misery on Karen in the near future. Is that promise? <laughs> as, as, as in a politician's promise. <laughs> when we have, I, I when think we, I, think I set it up for that very well. <laughs> when we're having that Indian F2... <laughs> <laughs> soon, Val, soon. Good, good. Anyway, let's move on from... <laughs> um, Karen, I mean, going back to my question earlier on about do you inhabit your characters, if I was to guess, I would say that the character that has most of you in her is, is Karen. Is that right or wrong? Or That would be an assumption that may or may not be true. <laughs> She's no, out no, doing the politician answers at the moment. No, I, I, I think it's. I think uh, being serious for a moment, um, every character I write has elements of my own experiences, has elements of myself in it, because that's all you can write mm. from. It's your own understanding of the world. That's often informed by your observation, by by what how, how you, you see people behave, how you hear people talk. And you, you sort of suck in all that stuff, but it's always filtered through your own consciousness. Mm -hmm. So some characters uh, superficially have more resemblance to me than others, but that doesn't mean that internally, the interior life reflects mine all the way. So, for example, I mean, Lindsay Gordon, my first series character, you know, she's Scottish, she's a lesbian, she's a feminist, she's left wing, um, and, you know, but she's not me. Mm -hmm. She's a journalist, but she's not, she wasn't me. Uh, in terms of personality and, and, and the kind of decisions she mm -hmm. makes, very different from me. So you, you draw on your own experience and then you, you kind of... Uh, it passes through the crucible of imagination, I suppose, and becomes something different. Um, so, yeah, there are some, I, I think some elements of, of me and Karen, but there's some elements of me also in, in mm -hmm. Carol and, and Tony and in, of course, all my serial killers. <laughs> but we'll oh, not yes. talk too much about that. Yes. You, I mean, your, your novels are clearly not in any sense overtly political, and I'm talking small p political here, but I think the, the world is there, and yeah. particularly in the Karen Perry novels, I mean, certainly, you know, the reality of modern Scotland is very much there, and those novels we've had uh, very powerful themes about Syrian refugees, Balkan war crimes. Is that something particular in the Karen Perry novels you're, you're consciously doing, kind of reflecting the world around her as she solves her crimes and tells her stories? I think I've always tried to do that within, within my novels, is, is, is to write, to set them very firmly within uh, a, a social place, a real mm -hmm. place, um, so they reflect 
what's happening in, in, in current contemporary life. Um, I've always tried to have that sense of, of the zeitgeist. Uh, and although um, Karen, for example, doesn't age in real time, um, I, I'm going to live my life henceforth in Karen Perry years, where where you get one year older for every five years in real time. You know, <laughs> um, but but the books themselves are positioned quite particularly in terms of of time and place. So yeah, I draw in the things that I see around me. I don't sit down and and sit down and, and think this is a book where I'm going to write about homelessness, or this is a book where I'm going to write about immigration, or this is a book I'm going to write about whatever. I, it's a story that drives me. And these other things come in because they, they give the story texture mm. and they give it, again, that sense of, of authenticity of being rooted in place and time. I mean, the crime novel is, is always a journey of suspension of disbelief for the reader because everybody knows that crimes are not solved the way we write about them in our books. You know, it's, it's not Detective Inspector Grumpy and his sidekick who buys all the drinks that solve crimes. It's actually done in a much more complex and repetitive way than that. So we have to find ways to make the reader believe in our universe. And I think one of the ways we do that is to write uh, about, about the world they live in with a degree of, of, of sort of quite clear-eyed way. And that's something that I think has very much happened uh, within the, the crime novel in the years that I've been uh, practising it. It really sort of started in the early 80s with writers like Sarah Paretsky, and then sort of came over here with sort of with, with non-metropolitan writers, if you like, like John Harvey, like Ian Rankin, like myself, trying to write about the world as we saw it around us, um, and incorporating the lives of 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 people that we, we saw around us. Given the, I suppose the the books a feel of being part of something and, and where the crimes feel almost organic mm. the crimes those particular crimes happen in this particular place because of the lives people lead because of the jobs that they do because of the the, the the leisure time they have because of the way they spend their time because of the politics in that city or in that part of the country and so those things um made the books feel much more firmly set in time and place um, but but also more credible. It's not just like some random murder bolted onto midsummer, you know, mm. or the cheese rolling down the hill. <laughs> <laughs> I'm struck you've you've mentioned a few times now the importance of authenticity in a medium that, as you just said, there is about or, or involves the suspension of of belief. I, I guess that the importance of authenticity also means that your your novels, the characters in them. You know, it's important that they reflect society as it yeah. is. I mean, you've got, you know, obviously very strong lesbian characters in your novels, uh, you know, different cultures and ethnicities. Is that diversity important to you that you're actually reflecting modern society? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm trying to, to paint a picture of, of the world I live mm -hmm. in. I mean, I've always, I've always, um, I've always tried to... I suppose, reflect the world I live in and almost the world I would like to live in too. I mean, when I started writing Lindsay Gordon, uh, I mean, she was the first British lesbian detective. Uh, but I was determined that I wasn't going to write uh, some uh, tub-thumping, uh, proselytising novel about being a lesbian. I wanted it to, to be, if you like, normalised. I wanted it to be part of the spectrum of everyday life. She is a journalist. She's an investigator. She's a friend. She's a lover. She's also a lesbian. 
And so that's just part of who she is. And it wasn't about uh, special pleading or, or about uh, somehow saying this is a separate group of people. You know, I never wanted to, to live in a ghetto, so why would I want to write in a ghetto? And I think that's why those books are still... They've never been out of print. Uh, and it's because they're about the story, they're about the, they're about the characters, and they're not about the issue. Um, and so, as I say, those I'm, I'm still amazed. You know, young women come up to me on a regular basis and say, "This is the first book I read with lesbians in it, and, and I mm. loved it." And I think that you know that's that's partly why, because I, 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 the books are not about the issues. The issues find find their way in through the characters. Mm. But that must. Well, I'm, I'm saying it must have been. It, you can answer this. Writing those novels back when you did must have been a lot tougher than it would be to write them today. Attitudes were different. You've spoken about yeah. feeling you had to leave Scotland back then because you know you didn't feel as if it was a place you could be comfortable and and at home. So that must have been to to write something that was so ahead of its time, cutting edge, first lesbian detective. That must have been quite tough at the time. I didn't, to be honest, I didn't think about it in those terms. I just thought, this is a story I want mm. to tell. Um, I tried to write other kinds of things and, and failed. Um, and I, and I realised eventually that what I needed to do was to write a form where I understood it. Uh, and, I, and I'd read so much crime fiction over the years, I kind of felt that I, I had the hang of how a crime mm. novel had to work. Uh, and I, started, I, I sat down and started to think about this novel. Um, and it didn't occur to me that she wouldn't be a lesbian. It was just that, that that was the story that was in my head. That was the way I wanted to write it. And so I wrote it, and I was lucky enough um, to be writing it at a time when there was an appetite for a book like that in the UK. Um, I suppose uh, I'd been reading uh, people like Sarah Paretsky, Sue Grafton, Marsha Muller, and the early lesbian feminist uh, crime novelists like Barbara Wilson and Mary Wings. And so that almost gave me permission mm -hmm to write the kind, of, the kind of central character that I wanted to write. Um, but as I said, it didn't really occur to me that, that this was a, a crazy thing to do. Until I, yeah, I got it published by the Women's Press. I, mean, I sent it to the Women's Press and, they, and they, they were very eager for it because the success of those American writers had, had created an interest, an appetite, a readership. Um, but it still was a bit of an uphill struggle. Um, and, and, you know, I sort of did some very strange uh, radio interviews and things around the time that those books started to, to become more popular. Um, so strange middle-aged men saying, I've never read a lesbian novel before, <laughs> but I might read another one now. <laughs> so, but, I, I mean, it was, it was weird. Cause it, I, was, I, was, I was lucky. I think, the, you know, luck is a, is a really um, often overlooked element in a, in a literary career. Um, you know, if I'd written that book five years earlier, I'd never have found a publisher. Mm -hmm. If I'd written it five years later, the market would have been mm -hmm. more or less glutted. So I just happened to be in the right place with the right book at the right time. And in those days, um, newspapers, magazines didn't, didn't review paperbacks. And the first three Lindsay Gordons were paperback originals. So when the book came out, it didn't get a single review. And I think later it got something in Spare Rib or something like that. But, but it really was a book that, that grew by word of mouth. Um, and gradually, I built up an audience. Um, and uh, you know, it, over the years, that's, that audience has grown. But I say the books have never been out of print. And um, it gives me great satisfaction that every year I earn more money from Report for Murder than I got for my initial advance, <laughs> which was pitiful. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I mean, we talk about you know, attitudes having changed in those years and so much progress on LGBT issues and a whole range of other things, although... You know, we live in a world where 
equally, it sometimes feels as if we're in danger of some of that progress going backwards. And you know, I said a moment ago, your, your novels are, are not political, but if you were to turn your, your mind to writing a political thriller, do you think it would be possible to come up with fiction stranger <laughs> than the current reality oh. we're living through? No, I think, uh, I think we've gone beyond satire. <laughs> it's like, um, and, uh, but it's also, it's also, I mean, the circumstances in which we find ourselves in this country and, and in, in, in America and, and in other countries, the sort of rise of, of extremism, it's very frightening. Mm. Um, and it's very easy to, um, to try and, when we're frightened, we try to make a joke out of things. And I think that's one of the things that's going on just now. Um, and, and, and I think that, we do this, we do, we do make these jokes, we, we do uh, allow them to be these sort of figures of fun almost, because to think about the, the, the alternative is, is really the kind of stuff that makes you lie awake at night, you know, wondering about your future of your children, mm -hmm. uh, and the future of your country, and the future of your friends. It's, it's, not, it's not good. Yeah. You know, and there is, I mean, you know, you're talking about LGBT rights, you know, you look around the world, and there are, there are countries now where this is very definitely going backwards. You know, where where it's 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 fatal to be out as mm -hmm. as a, a gay person or lesbian. It's just um, it's it's worrying. It's scary. Yeah. No, I, I think that's so right. Fix it. I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> we talked a moment ago about Tony and Carol, Wire in the Blood, uh, television series. Are we going to see any of your other characters on the big screen or the small screen? Um, Soon, Karen, well, perhaps? You know, things are perpetually in development. Karen is in development at the moment. Um, Lindsay Gordon's in development at the moment. But we're actually filming uh, a television series called Traces, which is set in Dundee. Um, and it's about forensic science. Because my years of, of, of writing the fiction has brought me into contact with a lot of forensic scientists. I wrote a book a few years ago about forensics. Mm. Um, so I interviewed a lot of forensic scientists for that. And one of the things that they all say is how infuriated they get by the way they're portrayed in, fi in some fiction, but, but mostly on television, and like, things like CSI mm. and Silent Witless. And, <laughs> and you know, characters like Waking the Dead, where you've got one forensic scientist who does every single discipline brilliantly. Um, and that's really not how it is. And they get very fed up by this. And they also, on a more serious, serious note, worry that it uh, influences the way juries see what forensic evidence means. Mm. Um, and I know that there's a big research project going on at Dundee at the moment, funded by the Leverhulme Trust, 10-year project for a paradigm shift in how forensic science is presented in the courtroom so that it's more easily comprehensible by jurors, by witnesses, by, by judges. Um, we'll see how that goes. But, um, but so I, I, I thought all, the, all these years um, I've known these people who tell me extraordinary things that make me go like, wow, that's incredible. Or they tell me about cases um, which just like you rock, rock you back on your heels, just extraordinary nature of them. And I thought it should be possible to make a television series that's based around a group of forensic scientists uh, that actually has the feel of how it really happens and is still a dramatic series. So we're filming this six-part crime drama which centres around... Uh, what, 
and I should say at this moment that we do forensic science differently in Scotland from the way you do it in England. Um, in Scotland, it's still done by uh, largely by academics uh, and largely. Um, so that you've got, for example, the, the the unit at Dundee, which has got some of the top forensic scientists anywhere in the country, uh, and and that's where the police go. Uh, in England, with the closure of the forensic science services, the police go to the high, to the lowest bidder. Mm -hmm. So there's these for private forensic labs all around the country, some of which have already been uh, revealed to be really not very good at what they're doing because they're cutting corners. Cases are cases are going to appeal because the forensic evidence was dodgy. Uh, and that's really not a good way to run your justice system. <coughs> and we should go back to having state-run facilities yeah. or using that sort of the, the university model. Anyway, so that's a, a side thing. So we, we, we've got this, this drama that's based around a forensic science unit um, and uh, set in Dundee. That's being filmed at the moment with lovely Martin Compston from Line of Duty starring in that. Um, and, a, and a stellar cast of Scottish actors, mostly, that you've seen. You'll recognise them all as soon as they appear across the screen. Um, and uh, that's going to be on the screens in late November on Brilliant. UK Alibi channel. Fantastic. Well, that is something to look forward to. Do you make an appeal? Because you had a wee cameo in Wire in the Blood, didn't you? I did, yes. Yeah. I did. Uh -huh. no, that Wire in the Blood cameo, that was another story. <laughs> I was, I was, you know, the, the producer that was, was adamant that I should have this like wee Hitchcock cameo sort of thing. And um, I was supposed to be... Uh, a, a journalist number one, uh, and this was supposed to be a scene in a police press conference, uh, and I had two lines. And my first line was, how do you feel, Inspector Jordan? And my second line was, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I rehearsed this line for some time. <laughs> With various inflections. How do you feel, Inspector Jordan? 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 Um, so I'd, I'd kind of decided in my head which way I was going to play it, and then it turned up on the day of filming to be greeted by the, the producer saying, we can't have the location that we were going to do the press conference in today, so we're going to do a, a different scene. So you're going to be journalist number two in a different scene. And I said, oh, OK, right, what's my line? Where was he arrested? What can you do with that? Where was he arrested? Where was he arrested? Where was he arrested? Where was he arrested? I mean, that, that, that. it's not. It doesn't really. So how did you do it? Give, give us. The, how did you deliver it? Well, where was he arrested? That sounds all right. But when it came to the filming, it was one. It was, it was one of these scenes that I'm sure you've seen from many police dramas, where the accused person is, is being whisked into the the courtroom area in a police car, and there's this sort of baying mob you know, wanting their blood. And so there's a few of us as, as journalists at the front of this crowd. And when people uh, are, are hired to do these non-speaking extra parts, they get very excited. You know, they think, they think that Steven Spielberg's watching this, you know, and he's going to go, him there, that guy third from the left in the back row, I want him in my next movie. <laughs> so they all overact terribly to begin with. And they have to do two or three rehearsals and a couple of takes for them to calm down. So get the first take. And the car comes down and the whole crowd just surges forward. And we get, like, myself and the, 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 the actress playing the named journalist, Perry Burgess. <laughs> we got completely knocked off our feet. So she's standing with her tights and in ribbons and she's got bleeding knees. <laughs> so, so she has to be taken away to wardrobe to be reassembled, you know. So, so. 
So we, we do it again the second time, and this time I get one of the, the, the extras who's acting as a cop whacks me across the back of the leg with his baton. So, so, so I'm doing a face plant into the tarmac. At which point, but then, then the, the moment that I will treasure forever is the director came over to speak to the extras, and he said, I understand how exciting this is, but please be careful of the talent. <laughs> so... So that was my moment of glory in, in Wire of the Blood. And it's, it's all a lot simpler in, in, in traces. I, I stand no. on Dundee Law, which is the big hill in the centre of Dundee. Um, and I am in the film within a film. There's a, within the, the, the drama, there is a, 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 an online course that's being run by the university. Um, and I play the newsreader in the online course. So I get to do... this. This morning, in the early hours of this morning, a dog walker discovered human remains buried here on Dundee Law. It's quite a big speaking part. Yeah, it's quite a big speaking part. Mm. And um, my partner, if you look very carefully, you'll see Joe walking through the field Ooh, behind you very Joe slowly. Wearing the Karen <laughs> Perry t-shirt? Or... <laughs> no, sadly no. not. No, no. Okay. no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Trying to, they did sort of suggest that she had you know, a walking part or a sitting part. And I suggested a sitting part because really, you know, whenever they ask you to walk on camera, you forget how you walk, you know. You, you start so doing not like showing the, too start, much confidence you know, in your abilities, You start Joe. doing the stuff, you know, you start doing the sort of, how do I walk? Is it like this? <laughs> or is it like this? <laughs> Everybody's the same. Everybody forgets how to walk. I mean, there are documentaries where, where I look like I've got some sort of disability, to be honest. Um, so, but but we, we, we compromise, so Joe gets to walk across the scene, but the grass is quite long and you can only see her from the waist down. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> right, we're, I know you're going to be glued to your screen for that one. I absolutely am. We're running out of time because we want to open up in a few minutes to some questions from the audience, but one question I really do want to ask you, and I, I try not to sound too much like a fangirl asking you, it's a serious Feel question. Free. Okay. Um, and, and the question is, how do you do it? Right, because, I mean, seriously here, you publish one a year, yeah. really, um, and these are not, you know, copy and paste, kind of formulaic crime novels. I mean, a few pages into this, you get a lesson on brain science. The research that must go into these novels, as well as the, the plotting, the character development, so one a year of these. Uh, on top of that, you've got various other projects on the go. You play at Glastonbury, <laughs> you're off to New Zealand with a, a visiting uh, professorship. You do some, how do you do it? it? It amazes me that you manage to produce the body of top quality work that you do. Says the woman who runs the country. <laughs> but I mean, really. <laughs> well, I, I think I'm, I'm just, I'm, when, I'm, when, I'm, when I'm working on something, I'm very focused. Um, and I'm, I'm very productive in, in the moment. But I, I write in 20-minute chunks. You know, so I write for 20 minutes, then I'll go and do something else, so make a cup of coffee, play a computer game, go to the post office, you know, go for a wee walk, whatever. Um, and, and that seems to work for me, and mm -hmm. that way I seem to get through quite a lot of stuff. Um, and I, I have no problem with uh, finding ideas. Ideas are everywhere. Mm. You know, my head is stuffed with half-formed things that might one day turn into enough of a story to make a book out of it or might just disappear in the sort of compost heap at the back of my head. And, but, but somehow um, the, 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 the fertility of, of ideas never stops. 
I, I mean, so every year so far, touch wood, when I've sat down in January to start a new book, there's always been something that's been ready to roll, that's been mm. developed in my head for long enough to, to make sense and to make a story. And, you know, for as long as, as, long as that keeps happening, I'll, I'll keep on doing it. I mean, the thing is, that I'm, I'm really not, I'm not very good company when I'm not working on something, when I've not got a project going on either on the page or in my head. Um, I'm, I'm not much fun at all. Um, uh, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm incredibly lazy because I do, I do spend a lot of you time hear, you, you arsing about doing nothing much. But you hear writers talking about, you know, books taking years. You know, I know roughly how much time is involved in the, the kind of preparation and the production of a book. So you start right, you would have started writing this when? January, January this year. Uh -huh. When? So how, how long does the writing process take? Is that just a matter of weeks? It, took about, it takes about three to four months, right. usually. Um, sometimes other things get in the way that, 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 that things I've got to that I've got to deal with other projects that sort of stumble into the writing time. And I try I try to keep that fairly sacrosanct, uh, and then we we, we I, it goes off to my editor. I, I do one rewrite and that's it. We're done. God, you make it sound so easy. Sorry, I've done I've done it. I've got, I've got quite good practicing. The, you're I've, very I've done good. It, you know, I've got better at it. You but know. you need to, you know, there are some crime writers, nobody that we know, obviously. But there's you know. It's formulaic. Your, your work is not like that. It's all original, no. high-quality, top-notch research. It just amazes me that you do it in that kind of space of time. Look, an audience like this, there are bound to be aspiring writers in here. If you could give you know, one piece of advice to an aspiring crime writer, what would it be? It would be ring fence the time. I mean, a lot of people when they start writing, they've got full time jobs or they've got they've got family responsibilities or whatever, and it seems like an insurmountable mountain to climb. But what you need to do, I think, is to ring fence some time in your working week in your week that is sacrosanct. And if it's only a few hours a week, that's fine. I wrote my first four novels on Monday afternoons because that was my time off. Each mm. one of them took me about two years to mm. write. But if you if you Ring fence that time and say, that is my writing time. And whatever happens, I'm not going to answer the phone. I'm not going to answer the door. Don't come chapping on my, on my door. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm writing. Uh, and it's amazing how much that builds up and builds up week on week. Because um, the time you're not writing, you're thinking about it. You're thinking about what you did the last time you were writing, how to revise it. You're thinking about what comes next. You're rehearsing dialogue. You're practicing scenes. You're working out problems. So when you do sit down, it's very productive. Mm. So I think that's a really important thing. And if you can manage it, figure out for yourself what's your most productive time of the day. So I mean, there's no point in me getting up at five o'clock in the morning to write for four hours because, you know, come nine o'clock, that's five plus four, yeah, come nine o'clock, I'd still be sitting there going, oh, God. <laughs> so if you can find, I mean, most of us have times of the day where we're more, more productive than others. So mm. if you can actually find a bit of that time when you're productive to make that your... your, your allocated time that way. It's mm -hmm. amazing how quickly it'll build up. Yeah. And is it important as a writer, do you think, to read a lot? Oh, I. Yeah. Reading is, I mean, reading is how we become writers. Mm -hmm. It's how we become better writers. Reading other people going, I've learned from this, that's a really clever bit of structuring, that's really, uh, that's, I wish I'd thought of how to do that myself. And also reading bad books sometimes, you read, I'm never going to do that. <laughs> you know, so everything you read feeds into your knowledge as, as, as a writer. You and know. you read constantly even while you're... I've spoken uh -huh. to some writers who, while they're writing, they don't like to read other work because it kind of confuses them or... But you read all the time. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I feel secure enough in the voices in my head mm -hmm. 
<laughs> I'm not sure the rest of us can feel secure about the voices in your head, but <laughs> well, I think it's I think it's, it really is important. I I I I did the Booker Prize judging last yeah. year, so we had to work our way through 171 novels. And a lot of those were very different from what I would normally read. The, the things that were coming across across my desk that, that were uh, strange, and, and a lot of them were really exciting. And they really made me sort of take take stock mm. and pause and think, am I pushing myself enough? Am I challenging myself enough? Do I need to be thinking about things other than the things I'm thinking about already? Um, and so that, for me, was a really positive experience, but it was exhausting. I, I actually I actually started dreaming mashups of, of the novels I'd been reading for the, for the judging. It was really very strange. You'd wake up and think, is that actually a book, or did I just dream that? But, oh, no, it's those two books mashed together. So, so she read 171 novels for the Booker Prize and still manages to publish one of her own every I, I year. Start, I started it a bit early that year. Yeah. I started it in November rather than January, because I knew, I knew I was going to be a bit busy. Yeah. Superwoman. No, no. No, seriously, no, no. I, I mean that in all sincerity. I'm in awe of the amount of work you produce and everything else you do uh, in addition to that. Anyway, I am now in danger of hogging Ms McDermott. I am going to open to the floor for a few minutes. Um, you, t you talked about the importance of writers reading. How important is it that political leaders read, and particularly read fiction? Yeah. Well, I think it's vital that people read from all sorts of perspectives because, I mean, there is so much out there, so much range of, of fiction and non-fiction. There cannot be a person who can't find something that speaks to them in a book. And particularly for children, it's vital to, to get books in their hands, to get them reading early, so they can look, by, look beyond their immediate horizon and see the other worlds out there and to think about those other worlds and to dream. And, you know, in Scotland, we've got the Scottish Book Trust who work with the Scottish Government to put books in the hands of young children. And I think that's a really vital thing. Um, it's very interestingly, there's, there's a woman called Karen McCluskey uh, who set up the Violence Reduction Unit in Strathclyde some years ago to deal with uh, knife crime and crime among young men particularly. And that has had a remarkable success rate in reducing violent crime in that area and, and has now been applied throughout Scotland. Um, and one of the things that she thinks is really vital is that, that one of the points where, where you can actually find an in into the lives of violent young men is when they become fathers. Because for many of them, for most of them, they have no father figure in their life. Either their father is absent or their father is violent or abusive. They have no role model. And that's the point where you can say to them, sit down and read to your children. If you can't read, we'll help you read. If you can't read at all, we'll teach, we'll learn stories to share with your children. And that is, has also been demonstrated to be a really important building block in developing family relationships and making things better for the next generation. And that's why libraries are so important. If you take libraries away from people... Thank you. You, you, you diminish people's life chances because you're condemning them to repeat the lives of the generation before. And for a lot of people, that's not a very inspiring prospect. And I'm not just talking about people at the bottom of the pile. You'd be astonished at the number of supposedly middle-class homes I've been in where there's not a book in sight. In fact, when we, when we, when we bought our house in Edinburgh, um, there was one book in the house and it was propping open a window. And the young woman who was showing us around said, I keep saying to Robert, we really must get some books. <laughs> In the same way that you'd say, we really must get some vases. 
and, and that depressed me beyond measure because there were young children in that house. I yeah. thought, what you know, how do you how do you how do you explore the world around you if all you see is what's there in front of you? Absolutely. And just very briefly, from me reading is for me personally one of the most important things in my life. I mean, it it, it personally helps me. Uh, retain and maintain a, a sense of well-being. It probably keeps me sane in the mad political world we live in. But the, the importance of it in broadening your perspective, you know, developing a sense of empathy for people whose lives you don't have first-hand experience of, deepening your understanding of things that you don't have first-hand experience of. And, you know, I think reading generally, but reading fiction in particular is so vital for that. And I would stick my neck out here if more political leaders the world over, not pointing at any particular parts of the world in particular, but if more political reader, leaders read fiction, the world might be in a better state than it is right now. And so, next question. Um, Faval, I discovered your books not that long ago, and then I read everything you'd written in a very short space of time. And I was very struck by the different flavours of your series and some of your standalones. So, do you feel differently when you're writing a Karen, a Karen book or a Carol and a Tony book? I don't think I really feel differently um, when I'm actually in the process of writing. Um, I suppose where I feel differently is the start when I'm thinking about the story. What kind of story this is? What's the tone of the story? Whose story is it? And that's when I'm really feeling the, sensing the difference in the kind of stories. And one of the joys of, of modern crime writing, and again, that's something that's really, really developed most strongly in the last 30 years, is the sense that you can write different kinds of book with different tones, set in different subject areas, different strata of society. So you can go wherever you like with the crime novel, and that for me is one of the joys. It again gives me the scope to, to tell whatever story is burning in my head. And I've been fortunate in, in having publishers who have always given me my head and always said to me, you know, we're more interested in the book you want to write than in, you know, getting you to churn out a book in a series next next book. Um, and so I've always I've always written the book that, that was clamouring loudest in my head and my heart to be written. And I say that's where the, the difference lies. It's, it's before you start. Once I'm actually in the process, the kind of technical side tends to take over, and I'm thinking much more about, does this, does this work? Should I end this sentence here? Was this the right adjective? Uh, where does the chapter end? What's the next section? Is the balance right? So that, that becomes a different kind of, a much more technical process. Excellent. You must have been asked about this before, but why, why is crime writing so popular? <laughs> it's like there's so many reasons for this, and uh, uh, one of them, I think, is that, that it's, there's almost a sign of comfort in, in, it's like watching lightning strike in somebody else's house yeah. almost, <laughs> sort of talismanic, you know, it's, if it's happening over there, it's not happening mm -hmm. here. And also because, um, you know, I think we live in, in, uh, in, in world though that's, that's um, we're often quite alienated. I mean, I don't want to sound like Methuselah, but when I was growing up, I knew everybody in my street. I knew what their dads did mm -hmm. for a living. I knew their brothers and sisters. Now I barely know my next door neighbours, and I think that's, that's often the case for many of us. So we, we, we're in a world where we don't have that sort of sense of security in our everyday lives, apart from our immediate home life, perhaps. Um, and, and so the world feels like quite a dangerous place. Uh, and, and the crime novel gives us that sense of uh, being a dangerous place in a safe way. This is sort of, it, it'll all work out in the end because Tony and Carlo come along and sort it out. 
So that's quite useful. And, and I think, too, that there's a, 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 there's a kind of sublimation involved. You know, everybody in this room has felt murderous. <laughs> Don't pretend you haven't. You've all sat there thinking, I could kill him. I could murder her. Um, and I, I, I think... <laughs> <laughs> Only several I, times a day. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just, just very quickly, a story that a librarian told me many years ago. Um, and he's, he, had a, he had a customer who came in every Monday morning and got six crime novels. And she was completely Catholic in her taste. It didn't matter if it was really violent, gory, uh, serial killer thriller or a nice, cosy, uh, golden age novel. She just read across the piece. Um, and... Then one Monday morning, she came in and said, she said, right, that's it, I'm done with murder. I want some nice romance. <laughs> and the librarian was slightly concerned that she might have finally encountered something she couldn't stomach. So he said, what, what, what's wrong with the, with the crime law? She said, she said well, well, love, she said, my husband's died, so I don't have to fantasise about murdering him anymore. <laughs> so there you go. It's a form, form of crime prevention. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my, my husband is writing my eyeline right now. I'm trying not to look at him. Um, <laughs> have we got somebody up the back for probably yep. what will be the last uh, question, unfortunately? Yep. OK, Nicola, and I'll make it quick, because it's for you. Oh. A number of politicians <laughs> end up writing novels. Are you tempted? Oh, I'm, I'm tempted. Uh, I'm not sure I have a novel uh, in me. I'd love to think I had the, the talent and the ability to write a novel that other people would want to read. I'm, I'm not sure I do, but uh, one day uh, after politics, which uh, I hasten to add, I hope is sometime in the, the future, you never know, I might turn my hand to it. And uh, I'll have the best mentor, of course, to <laughs> ask advice from. And you've got plenty of experience to draw on. <laughs> well, all, all these murderous impulses I have <laughs> day and daily will certainly help me along. But um, I don't know. I, I don't think I would uh, feel confident enough to say watch this space. But um, who knows? As Val said earlier, oh, never say never. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Val, last word to you. Who, who, who would you, apart from uh, your own books, which you all want, want us all to read, who do you like reading? Who's your favourite author? Oh, that's the impossible question. I mean, there, there are so many terrific writers writing just now. And every year when I do The New Blood, I find more. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hedge my bets here a bit and go with somebody dead. <laughs> wow. And, and, and I'm going to go with... I mean, when I, was on, when I was on Desert Island Discs, I said that the book I wanted to take with me was a collected works of Robert Louis Stevenson. And I would still stick with that because Stevenson has something for whatever mood you're in. Mm -hmm. he, he, can write, he can write lightly, he can write the verse, he can write the darkest of mm -hmm. dark with Jekyll and Hyde, and Master of Ballantrae, things like that. And, and I think the perfect book, uh, Treasure Island, which has got all mm -hmm. great characters, great setting, fantastic story, and the kind of open ending that leaves room for the reader to carry on imagining that world, you know, Long John Silver's still out there. There's still treasure on the island. You know, it's like you can't help but fantasise about where that would go next. So I'd, I'd, I'd stick with Stevenson because he would supply my every need. There you go. That is a pretty good recommendation to end uh, this wonderful session uh, on. I, I could sit here and listen to Val for hours and hours and hours, and I'm sure all of you could. Sadly, we have run out of time, so please just uh, join me and uh, pay tribute to the queen of crime, Val McDermott. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thanks for reaching the end of the episode. We hope you enjoyed it. It would be great if you could do us a quick favour and head over to wherever you get your podcasts and rate us five star and then leave a nice glowing review. It'll help boost the podcast up the charts, which makes it easier for more people to find us and join our exciting podcast community.